Chapter Six of Clotel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Clotel by William Wells Brown. Chapter Six: The Religious Teacher. What preaching and slave men give thanks and rob thy own afflicted poor? Talk of thy glorious liberty and then bolt hard the captive's door. Whittier. The Reverend John Peck was a native of the state of Connecticut, where he was educated for the ministry in the Methodist persuasion. His father was a strict follower of John Wesley, and spared no pains in his son's education, with the hope that he would one day be as renowned as the great leader of his sect. John had scarcely finished his education at New Haven, when he was invited by an uncle, then on a visit to his father, to spend a few months at Natchez in the state of Mississippi. Young Peck accepted his uncle's invitation and accompanied him to the South. Few young men, and especially clergymen, going fresh from a college to the South, but are looked upon as geniuses in a small way, and who are not invited to all the parties in the neighborhood. Mr. Peck was not an exception to this rule. The society into which he was thrown, on his arrival at Natchez, was too brilliant for him not to be captivated by it, and as might have been expected, he succeeded in captivating a plantation with seventy slaves, if not the heart of the lady to whom it belonged. Added to this, he became a popular preacher, had a large congregation with a snug salary. Like other planters, Mr. Peck confided the care of his farm to Ned Huckleby, an overseer of high reputation in his way. The poplar farm, as it was called, was situated in a beautiful valley nine miles from Natchez, and near the river Mississippi. The once unshorn face of nature had given way, and now the farm blossomed with a splendid harvest. The neat cottage stood in a grove, where Lombardy poplars lift their tufted tops almost to prop the skies. The willow, locust, and horse-chestnut spread their branches, and flowers never ceased to bloom. This was the parson's country-house, where the family spent only two months during the year. The town residence was a fine villa, seated upon the brow of a hill at the edge of the city. It was in the kitchen of this house that Currer found her new home. Mr. Peck was, every inch of him, a Democrat, and early resolved that his people, as he called his slaves, should be well fed and not overworked, and therefore laid down the law and gospel to the overseer as well as the slaves. "'It is my wish,' said he to Mr. Carlton, an old schoolfellow, who was spending a few days with him, "'it is my wish that a new system be adopted on the plantations in this estate.' I believe that the sons of Ham should have the gospel, and I intend that my negroes shall. The gospel is calculated to make mankind better, and none should be without it. What say you, replied Carlton, about the right of man to his liberty? Now, Carlton, you have begun again to harp about man's rights. I really wish you could see this matter as I do. I have searched in vain for any authority for man's natural rights. If he had any, they existed before the fall— that is, Adam and Eve may have had some rights which God gave them, and which modern philosophy, in its pretended reverence for the name of God, prefers to call natural rights. I can imagine that they had the right to eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. They were restricted even in this by the prohibition of one. As far as I know, without positive assertion, their liberty of action was confined to the garden. These were not inalienable rights— However, for they forfeited both them and life with the first act of disobedience, had they, after this, any rights? We cannot imagine them, 
They were condemned beings. They could have no rights. But by Christ's gift as king, these are the only rights man can have as independent, isolated being. If we choose to consider him in this impossible position in which so many theorists have placed him, if he had no rights, he could suffer no wrongs. Rights and wrongs are therefore necessarily the creatures of society, such as man would establish himself in his gregarious state. They are in this state both artificial and voluntary. Though man has no rights, as thus considered, undoubtedly he has the power, by such arbitrary rules of right and wrong, as his necessity enforces. I regret I cannot see eye to eye with you, said Carlton. I am a disciple of Rousseau, and have for many years made the rights of man my study, and I must confess to you that I see no difference between white men and black men as it regards liberty. Now, my dear Carlton, would you really have the Negroes enjoy the same rights with ourselves? I would most certainly. Look at our great Declaration of Independence. Look even at the Constitution of our own Connecticut, and see what is said in these about liberty. I regard all this talk about rights as mere humbug. The Bible is older than the Declaration of Independence, and there I take my stand. The Bible furnishes to us the armor of proof, weapons of heavenly temper and mold, whereby we can maintain our ground against all attacks. But this is true only when we obey its directions, as well as employ its sanctions. Our rights are there established, but it is always in connection with our duties. If we neglect the one, we cannot make good the other. Our domestic institutions can be maintained against the world if we but allow Christianity to throw its broad shield over them. But if we act as to array the Bible against our social economy, they must fall. Nothing ever yet stood long against Christianity. Those who say that religious instruction is inconsistent with our peculiar civil polity are the worst enemies of that polity. They would drive religious men from its defense. Sooner or later, if these views prevail, they will separate the religious portion of our community from the rest, and thus divided we shall become an easy prey. Why, is it not better that Christian men should hold slaves than unbelievers? We know how to value the bread of life, and will not keep it from our slaves. Well, every one to his own way of thinking, said Carlton, as he changed his position. I confess, added he, that I am no great admirer of either the Bible or slavery. My heart is my guide, my conscience is my Bible. I wish for nothing further to satisfy me of my duty to man. If I act rightly to mankind, I shall fear nothing. Carlton had drunk too deeply of the bitter waters of infidelity, and had spent too many hours over the writings of Rousseau, Voltaire, and Thomas Paine, to place that appreciation upon the Bible and its teaching that it demands. During this conversation there was another person in the room, seated by the window, who, although at work upon a fine piece of lace, paid every attention to what was said. This was Georgiana, the only daughter of the parson. She had just returned from Connecticut, where she had finished her education. She had had the opportunity of contrasting the spirit of Christianity and liberty in New England with that of slavery in her native state, and had learned to feel deeply for the injured Negro. Georgiana was in her nineteenth year, and had been much benefited by a residence of five years at the North. Her form was tall and graceful, her features regular and well-defined, and her complexion was illuminated by the freshness of youth, beauty, and health. The daughter differed from both the father and his visitor upon the subject which they had been discussing, and as soon as an opportunity offered, she gave it as her opinion 
that the Bible was both the bulwark of Christianity and of liberty. With a smile she said, "'Of course Papa will overlook my differing from him, for although I am a native of the South, I am by education and sympathy a northerner.' Mr. Peck laughed and appeared pleased, rather than otherwise, at the manner in which his daughter had expressed herself. From this Georgiana took courage and said, "'We must try the character of slavery in our duty in regard to it, as we should try any other question of character and duty. To judge justly of the character of anything, we must know what it does. That which is good does good, and that which is evil does evil. And as to duty, God's designs indicate His claims. That which accomplishes the manifest design of God is right. That which counteracts it, wrong. Whatever in its proper tendency and general effect produces, secures, or extends human welfare, is according to the will of God, and is good, and our duty is to favor and promote, according to our power, that which God favors and promotes by the general law of His providence. On the other hand, whatever in its proper tendency and general effect destroys, abridges, or renders insecure human welfare, is opposed to God's will, and is evil. And as whatever accords with the will of God, in any manifestation of it, should be done and persisted in, so whatever opposes that will should not be done, and if done should be abandoned. Can that then be right, be well-doing, can that obey God's behest, which makes a man a slave, which dooms him in all his posterity, in limitless generations, to bondage, to unrequited toil through life? Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. This single passage of Scripture should cause us to have respect to the rights of the slave, True Christian love is of an enlarged, disinterested nature. It loves all who love the Lord, Jesus Christ in sincerity, without regard to color or condition. "'Georgiana, my dear, you are an abolitionist. Your talk is fanaticism,' said Mr. Peck in rather a sharp tone. But the subdued look of the girl in the presence of Carlton caused the father to soften his language. Mr. Peck, having lost his wife by consumption, and Georgiana being his only child, he loved her too dearly to say more, even if he felt displeased. A silence followed this exhortation from the young Christian, but her remarks had done a noble work. The father's heart was touched, and the skeptic, for the first time, was viewing Christianity in its true light. "'I think I must go out to your farm,' said Carlton, as if to break the silence. "'I shall be pleased to have you go,' returned Mr. Peck. "'I am sorry I can't go myself, but Huckleby will show you every attention,' and I feel confident that when you return to Connecticut, you will do me the justice to say that I am one who looks after my people, in a moral, social, and religious point of view. Well, what do you say to my spending next Sunday there? Why, I think that is a good move. You will then meet the Snyder, our missionary. Oh, you have missionaries in these parts, have you? Yes, replied Mr. Peck. Snyder is from New York, and is our missionary to the poor, and preaches to our people on Sunday. You will no doubt like him. He is a capital fellow. Then I shall go, said Carlton, but only wish I had company. This last remark was intended for Miss Peck, for whom he had the highest admiration. It was on a warm Sunday morning in the month of May that Miles Carlton found himself seated beneath a fine old apple tree, whose thick leaves entirely shaded the ground for some distance round. Under similar trees and nearby, were gathered together all the people belonging to the plantation. Hans Snyder was a man of about forty years of age, 
exceedingly low in stature, but of a large frame. He had been brought up in the Mohawk Valley in the state of New York, and claimed relationship with the oldest Dutch families in that vicinity. He had once been a sailor, and had all the roughness of character that a seafaring man might expect to possess, together with the half-Yankee, half-German peculiarities of the people of the Mohawk Valley. It was nearly eleven o'clock when a one-horse wagon drove up in haste, and the low, squatty preacher got out, and took his place at the foot of one of the trees, where a sort of rough board-table was placed, and took his books from his pocket, and commenced. "'As it is rather late,' said he, "'we will leave the singing and praying for the last, and take our text, and commence immediately. I shall base my remarks on the following passage of Scripture, and hope to have that attention which is due to the cause of God. "'All things whatsoever ye would that men should do unto you, do you even so unto them.' That is, do by all mankind, just as you would desire they should do by you, if you were in their place and they in yours. Now to suit this rule to your particular circumstances, suppose you were masters and mistresses, and had servants under you, would you not desire that your servants should do their business faithfully and honestly, as well when your back was turned as while you were looking over them? Would you not expect that they should take notice of what you said to them? that they should behave themselves with respect towards you and yours, and be as careful of everything belonging to you as you would be yourselves. You are servants. Do, therefore, as you would wish to be done by, and you will be both good servants to your masters and good servants to God, who requires this of you, and will reward you well for it, if you do it for the sake of conscience, in obedience to his commands. You are not to be eye-servants, now I servants are such as will work hard and seem mighty diligent while they think anybody is taking notice of them. But when their masters' and mistresses' backs are turned, they are idle and neglect their business. I am afraid there are a great many such eye-servants among you, and that you do not consider how great a sin it is to be so, and how severely God will punish you for it. You may easily deceive your owners and make them have an opinion of you that you do not deserve and get the praise of men by it. But remember that you cannot deceive Almighty God, who sees your wickedness and deceit, and will punish you accordingly. For the rule is that you must obey your masters in all things, and do the work they set you about with fear and trembling, in singleness of heart as unto Christ, not with eye servants as men-pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not as to men." Take care that you do not fret or murmur, grumble or repine at your condition. For this will not only make your life uneasy, but will greatly offend Almighty God. Consider that it is not yourselves, it is not the people that you belong to, it is not the men who have brought you to it, but it is the will of God who hath by his providence made you servants, because no doubt he knew that condition would be best for you in this world, and help you the better towards heaven, if you would but do your duty in it so that any discontent at your not being free or rich or great, as you see some others, is quarrelling with your heavenly master, and finding fault with God himself, who hath made you what you are, and hath promised you as large a share in the kingdom of heaven as the greatest man alive. If you will but behave yourself aright, and do the business he hath set you about in this world honestly and cheerfully, Riches and power have proved the ruin of many an unhappy soul, by drawing away the heart and affections from God, 
and fixing them on mean and sinful enjoyments, so that when God, who knows our hearts better than we know them ourselves, sees that they would be hurtful to us, and therefore keeps them from us, it is the greatest mercy and kindness he could show us. You may perhaps fancy that, if you had riches and freedom, you could do your duty to God and man with greater pleasure than you can now. But pray consider that, if you can but save your souls through the mercy of God, you will have spent your time to the best of purposes in this world. And he that at last can get to heaven has performed a noble journey. Let the road be ever so rugged and difficult. Besides, you really have a great advantage over most white people, who have not only the care of their daily labor upon their hands, but the care of looking forward and providing necessaries for tomorrow and next day, and of clothing and bringing up their children, and of getting food and raiment for as many of you as belong to their families, which often puts them to great difficulties, and distracts their minds so as to break their rest, and take off their thoughts from the affairs of another world. Whereas you are quite eased from all these cares, and have nothing but your daily labor to look after, and when that is done, take your needful rest. Neither is it necessary for you to think of laying up against old age, as white people are obliged to do, for the laws of the country have provided that you shall not be turned off when you are past labor, but shall be maintained while you live, by those you belong to, whether you are able to work or not. There is only one circumstance which may appear grievous, that I shall now take notice of, and that is correction. Now when correction is given you, you either deserve it, or you do not deserve it, but whether you really deserve it or not, it is your duty, and Almighty God requires that you bear it patiently. You may perhaps think that this is hard doctrine, but if you consider it right, you must needs think otherwise of it. Suppose, then, that you deserve correction. You cannot but say that it is just and right you should meet with it. Suppose you do not, or at least you do not deserve so much, or so severe a correction for the fault you have committed. You perhaps have escaped a great many more, and are at last paid for all. Or suppose you are quite innocent of what is laid to your charge, and suffer wrongfully in that particular thing. Is it not possible you may have done some other bad thing which was never discovered, and that Almighty God, who saw you doing it, would not let you escape without punishment one time or another? And ought you not, in such a case, to give glory to him, and be thankful that he would rather punish you in this life for your wickedness, then destroy your souls for it in the next life. But suppose even this was not the case, a case hardly to be imagined, and that you have by no means, known or unknown, deserved the correction you suffered. There is this great comfort in it, that if you bear it patiently, and leave your cause in the hands of God, He will reward you for it in heaven, and the punishment you suffer unjustly here shall turn to your exceeding great glory hereafter. Lastly, should you serve your masters faithfully because of their goodness to you? See to what trouble they have been on your account. Your fathers were poor, ignorant, and barbarous creatures in Africa, and the whites fitted out ships at great trouble and expense and brought you from that benighted land to Christian America, where you can sit under your own vine and fig tree and no one molest or make you afraid. Oh, my dear black brothers and sisters, you are indeed a fortunate and a blessed people. Your masters have many troubles that you know nothing about. If the banks break, your masters are sure to lose something. If the crop turns out poor, they lose by it. If one of you die, your master loses what he paid for you, 
while you lose nothing. Now let me exhort you once more to be faithful. Often during the delivery of the sermon did Snyder cast an anxious look in the direction where Carlton was seated, no doubt to see if he had found favor with the stranger. Huckleby, the overseer, was also there, seated near Carlton, with all Snyder's gesticulations, sonorous voice, and occasionally bringing his fist down upon the table with the force of sledgehammer. He could not succeed in keeping the negroes all interested. Four or five were fast asleep, leaning against the trees, as many more were nodding, while not a few were stealthily cracking and eating hazelnuts. "'Uncle Simon, you may strike up a hymn,' said the preacher as he closed his Bible. A moment more, and the whole company, Carlton accepted, had joined in the well-known hymn, commencing with, "'When I can read my title clear to mansions in the sky.' After the singing, Sandy closed with prayer, and the following questions and answered read, and the meeting was brought to a close. Question. What command has God given to servants concerning obedience to their masters? Answer. Servants obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye servants as men-pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. Question. What does God mean by masters according to the flesh? Answer. Masters in this world. Question. What are servants to count their masters worthy of? Answer. All honor. Question. How are they to do the service of their masters? Answer. With good will, doing service as unto the Lord, and not unto men. Question. How are they to try to please their masters? Answer. Please him well in all things, not answering again. Question. Is a servant who is an eye-servant to his earthly master, an eye-servant to his heavenly master? Answer. Yes. Question. Is it right in a servant, when commanded to do anything, to be sullen and slow and answer his master again? Answer, no. Question. If the servant professes to be a Christian, ought he not to be, as a Christian servant, an example to all other servants of love and obedience to his master? Answer, yes. Question. And should his master be a Christian also, ought he not, on that account, specially to love and obey him? Answer, yes. Question. But suppose the master is hard to please, and threatens and punishes more than he ought, what is the servant to do? Answer. Do his best to please him. Question. When the servant suffers wrongfully at the hands of his master, and to please God, takes it patiently, will God reward him for it? Answer. Yes. Question. Is it right for the servant to run away, or is it right to harbor a runaway? Answer. No. Question. If a servant runs away, what should be done with him? Answer. He should be caught and brought back. Question. When he is brought back, what should be done with him? Answer. Whip him well. Question. Why may not the whites be slaves as well as the blacks? Answer. Because the Lord intended the Negroes for slaves. Question. Are they better calculated for servants than the whites? Answer. Yes, their hands are large, the skin thick and tough, and they can stand the sun better than the whites. Question. Why should servants not complain when they are whipped? Answer. Because the Lord has commanded that they should be whipped. Question. Where has he commanded it? Answer. He says, He that knoweth his master's will, and doeth it not, shall be beaten with many stripes. Question. Then is the master to blame for whipping his servant? Answer. Oh, no, he is only doing his duty as a Christian. 
Snyder left the ground in company with Carlton and Huckleby, and the three dined together in the overseer's dwelling. "'Well,' said Joe, after the three white men were out of hearing, "'Master Snyder been trying himself to-day.' "'Yes,' said Ned. "'He want to show the strange gentleman how good he can preach.' "'That's a new sermon he give us to-day,' said Sandy. "'These white folks is the very devil,' said Dick, "'and all the whole study is to try to fool the black people.' "'Didn't you like the sermon?' asked Uncle Simon. "'No,' answered four or five voices. "'He rared and pitched enough,' continued Uncle Simon. "'Now Uncle Simon was himself a preacher, or at least he thought so, "'and was rather pleased than otherwise "'when he heard others spoken of in a disparaging manner.' "'Uncle Simon can beat that sermon all to pieces,' said Ned, as he was filling his mouth with hazelnuts. "'I got no notion of these white folks nohow,' returned Aunt Daphne. "'They all the time tellin' that the Lord made us for to work for them, and I don't believe a word of it.' "'Master Peck gave that sermon to Snyder, I know,' said Uncle Simon. "'He just did one for that,' replied Sandy. "'I think the people that made the Bible was great fools,' said Ned. "'Why, Uncle Simon?' "'cause they made such a great big book and put nothing in it, "'but servants obey your masters.' "'Oh,' replied Uncle Simon, "'there's more in the Bible than that, "'only Snyder never reads any other part to us. "'I used to hear it read in Maryland, "'and there was more than what Snyder lets us hear.' "'In the overseer's house there was another scene going on, "'and far different from what we have described here.' End of chapter 6